for each and every person on the face of the earth because we have an opportunity. And about 40 different directions to go this morning in this particular message I preached a couple of years ago. God led me back to it, and I'm going to uh, go there. Uh, resurrection's a wonderful thing, and I want to talk a little bit about it. But and I, I'll have to say this, that uh, you may be seated, please. Um, I'm going to be coming back around. You don't have to be standing. And I opened my wallet this morning. I thought I had money, and there was nothing in there. Brother Hill said I needed to bury it to see if it would be resurrected. So, so I thought I'd go home, try to bury my wallet, see if any money would grow in it. You know, he talked about seed. I put a penny in there, see if I can get a dollar out of it or something. Hallelujah! Oh, it's nice sometimes just to to be in the presence of God's people and to be in the presence of God. I um, whenever I think of of resurrection, I'm just kind of giving you a little precursor here for a few minutes um, I I go back to the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians when, where Paul made mention of what the gospel was and he said the gospel is the death, burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that is the good news that's the gospel and I uh, I look at it and on down in that chapter in verse 20 it talks about Jesus being the first fruits of those that sleep and so many of us uh, that are in here this morning have got loved ones that died in Christ uh, full of the baptism of the Holy Ghost baptized in Jesus name and and often we we get comfort from reading the words that I just mentioned to you and knowing that one day that we will see them again because Jesus was the first fruits. And if we get into a lot of eschatology, we could see that, now of course, the first fruits uh, being that the first fruits also are those that are going to be raptured or the ones that will come out of the grave during the rapture of the church. So those first fruits stretch for over 2,000 years, but it's still the first fruits. But if you really study how Israel saw the first fruits, it's, it's interesting. There's two uh, different uh, ways of looking at it or how the Israelites looked at the first fruits. The first one was the first fruits were uh, the early harvest, uh, your olives, your, your grapes, and so forth, that they were the first fruits of the bulk of the harvest. Uh, the other way is that the first fruits was the first tenth of all the harvest, that went to the temple, that was the tithe. And uh, as I began to, to look at that, I, I, and I especially was studying some of it, I got an extensive message on tithing, but I, I looked at the first fruits. If, if a person touched the first fruits that went to the priesthood or in any way ate it, first off, if it was, it was touched by anybody else, it was all thrown away and they started over again. If somebody eight of the first fruits, they had to pay a 25% penalty called the guilt offering. And, and I looked and I said, Jesus was the first fruits. He was the beginning of the harvest. But also in the sense that he was the perfect beginning. Because the first fruits went to, it had to be perfect in every way. So more than just the early harvest, Jesus, he was the perfect resurrected being he was God in the flesh resurrected and what are you saying is I'm saying that that through all of this 
the one thing that when I read that I have, and that is if Jesus was resurrected from the dead, which he was, then I have a hope if I go by way of the grave. And I think that all of us in here that are serving the Lord should realize that regardless of how you may feel at any given time and regardless of how hopeless life may look, you have a hope always in Jesus Christ. And we have that. And when we read that, we know I've got a hope. And without hope, we have absolutely nothing. And we are miserable beings, but we do have a hope. Now, what I, I want to, uh, I, and it kind of brings us around. My, my God is not still buried. You know, he, he's not still buried. Uh, not at all. And I want to talk about uh, what shall I do with a buried God. And I'm going to read to you out of Genesis 35, 1 through 4, then John 21 and 2. We uh, turned off PowerPoint because of the drama. We had the cross behind us here. In Genesis 35, excuse me, 1 through 4, it says, And God said unto Jacob, Arise, and go up to Bethel, and dwell there, and make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. In other words, he said, When you ran away from Esau, I want you to make an altar to the God that appeared to you during that time. Notice how he says it. Then Jacob said unto his household, and to all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you. And be clean and change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make there an altar unto God who answered me in the day of my distress and was with me in the way which I went. And they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand and all their earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. In John 21 and 2, it says, The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciples whom Jesus loved, and said unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. We don't know where they have laid him. Let's look to the Lord together right now just for a moment. Lord Jesus, we praise you. We glorify you. We thank you for what this day means to each and every one of us. We thank you for the hope, God, that we can find only in you. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for the empty tomb. We bless and honor you, Jesus, for your many blessings, for all that you have done, for how great you have been to each and every one of us. Thank you, Lord, that we can know you. Thank you. Lord, that we can know and understand the power of your resurrection. We praise you here in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, that we go through a lot of speculation when it comes to the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, no one really knows the time that he was born. We don't know. We, we speculate on the month that he was born. We can do a lot of that. And sometimes... And uh, people, when they begin to read the Scripture, they do a lot of speculation on things that really don't matter. But, it, it, you know, it's still interesting, and I don't necessarily uh, judge a person for that because I tend to do the same thing. Uh, but the one thing about the resurrection is that we, without a doubt, know the day that it happened. It happened on the first day of the week, and it happened at the Feast of Firstfruits. First day, first day of the week, Feast of Firstfruits. And yet for three days... For three days, each disciple, each fo follower of Jesus wondered. 
They, they had to. We, when we read the Bible, sometimes we, we look at it in a storybook form, and we don't realize that these were people just like us, with the same feelings, the same emotions, uh, the same wonder, the same doubt, if you would, that any of us have. And these, these men and women, you know, they looked and, and they wondered, is he going to do what he said he would do? Is he going to come out of that tomb? He's buried. Is he going to do this? And so they begin to, to think to themselves, what shall I do? What am I going to do with a buried God? What am I going to do with it? Now I want to jump with, with me for a moment back to the Old Testament. Jacob, whose name was now changed to Israel, looked at all the strange gods in his encampment. There again, let's look at a man with a man's feelings, a man who had had an encounter with God, a man who realized the power of the one true God. And now he looks at his encampment, and for the thousandth time, he looks around him, and he sees all of this, uh, these, these strange gods, if you would. And then he probably wondered to himself, why in the world have I allowed this to happen? Why have I allowed all this superstitious paraphernalia, if you would, adorn this camp? Now, his camp was, to, to, was qualified as a, as a mobile pagan shrine. And for the thousandth time, he sighed. Why have I allowed this to happen? And you can imagine with me, if you would, you know, he's looking at all this and he's beginning to rub his hip a little bit and he's hurt, but he's still hurting today and, and, and it's sore and he's got this limp and he's, he's walking about and, 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 and he remembers back when he was Jacob. He remembers when he was nothing more than the heel grabber. And, and he remembered how he was manipulative and how that, that he was really nothing at all. And he, the, the desperate second-born twin who actually had connived his way through life, he remembers that. Does anybody ever remember some of that about yourselves? This is how he was thinking. I am nothing but that, that manipulating, conniving twin. That's all I am. Now, supplanting all of a sudden had recently given away to supplication. And in his case, a sinner had become a saint. I remember that time and I remember I also would imagine how well that he remembered the night that all this took place you remember the night that all that changed do you remember the night when you a sinner became a saint you remember the time you remember the the battle the wrestling that you had to do this is what he was thinking now on the on the banks of the Jabbok River Jacob had wrestled for his life heaven had come to him in the form of an adversary the fight lasted long into the night and before the break of day Jacob received the break literally heaven afflicted him in his hip and heaven blessed him with help not only was he afflicted, but he was blessed. I believe that every person in here that's ever had that kind of encounter with God can remember, I may have been afflicted by something, but God also gave me help. No matter how bad life may seem to you, there's always a help that can come for you. No matter how bad, how much you may be hurting, there's always a help. No matter how rough life seems to be, how bad the job seems to be, all of a sudden God can come down 
down and everything can smooth right out and you know that you've got a help that comes from above. And that night Jacob became Israel. He became a prince of God. And of that night, Jacob said, I have seen the face of God and lived. Can you imagine a man that saw the face of God and was now alive and he's looking and walking through his camp and seeing what his own children and grandchildren are doing? He's limping through camp. He involuntarily compared that strange and and hapless, the strange and hapless deities to the powerful God he knew. Now, you think about this, these, these idols sitting around and he's comparing them to the God that he knew. I mean, he's wrestled with God. God afflicted him. He remembers. He sees God face to face. He remembers the change. Now he's walking around seeing the change in his own camp. God, I could preach for an hour on that one. I better not. This is Resurrection Sunday. You don't need to hear what I like to really like to say. <laughs> he stopped and he stared at the images displayed before the herdsman's tents. And emphatically, he would shake his head and he'd whisper, That's not my God. That's not my God. He drifted over to his, to his family's tent. And there his children and his grandchildren, they, they raced by him and they paused long enough to genuflect politely. And, and he saw their earrings and their bracelets with images of their miserable gods. Replicas, if you would, of the gods of his late wife, Rachel. Still found perched on some dusty shelf, her god was still there. Those gods couldn't help her when she gave birth to their son, Benjamin. No, these have not the face of my God, Jacob sighed. That's not my God. That God did not help my wife when she gave birth and died in childbirth. The call finally came from his God. God spoke. He said, Israel, arise and go to Bethel. Go to God's house. Jacob had not been so excited in years. Finally the call came. Bethel, the place of the golden ladder with angels ascending and descending. Bethel, the gateway of heaven. Bethel, the dwelling place of God. He gets a call to go back to the place where it all began. And immediately Israel began preparations to take his family to God's house. He made those preparations. It didn't take him long to begin to change things around the camp. But first, he says, something had to be done with all of these strange gods. I can't take this mess with me to God's house. He summoned his family, his herdsmen together, and instructed them to let go of their gods. Idols, earrings, icons, pagan symbols, and the like were handed over to Jacob. He journeyed into the woods, and beneath a great oak tree in Shechem, he buried their false gods. It's interesting, it's always at Shechem when something like this happens. Later on, Joshua calls everybody together at Shechem. He said, I want you to choose this day who you're going to serve. Shechem is a place of choice. Actually, Shechem means ridge. It was just a high spot there. 
It's interesting. I, I was thinking of that. Sometimes on a ridge, you you stand and you make a choice. Am I going to go this way or am I going to go the other way? Every time I think of that, I, I think back and 250 years ago when I was 20. And uh, I stood on a mountain. It was a ridge of a mountain in, in Colorado. And I had one hand in the snow and one hand in the sunshine. I'll never forget that. That's one of the highlights of my life. And I thought of that again. It's, it's the same way with, with this. At Shechem, it's a place. Which direction are you going to go? Are you going to go into the snow and the cold? Or are you going to go towards the light? That's exactly what he was saying here. And you ever think, you know, think about these, these kids were allowed to be raised with their false gods. And so you've got this grandchild that's standing there in front of her, her grandfather and she's thinking. She said, you know what, I, I, what, what am I going to do? He took away my God. I've got to throw this in. It won't cost you an extra dime. When you backslide and you take your kids out of church, I wonder what they think. I mean, this grandchild each day had prayed to this God. Each day she had prayed to that God. She had been comforted by that God. And her God was now being taken away and buried. She might have asked someone, where is he taking my Lord? I don't know where he's laid. Where is my God to be buried? Where, where is the stone covering his tomb? Where is that? What's happening to my God? How, how will I ever find him again? What that child wondered was, what shall I do with a buried God? What am I going to do with a buried God? And it certainly reminds me of another story. Hundreds of years later, Mary Magdalene arose before sunrise. Hurriedly, she made her way to the graveyard, and, and she came for no hope of relics, no worship of the dead, no seances with the departed. She came to see. She came to see. The stone covering our Lord's tomb was rolled back. The body was missing, and she raced back to the apostles and said, He's gone. Someone stole him. He's gone. Our Lord is gone. I have, through the years, had people, other ministers, uh, ask me a question. And it's a question I think all of us probably at one time or the other might have asked ourselves or have, have discussed. And it is, how do you see Calvary? Now, you think about that. That's, that's quite a question. How do I see or you see Calvary? And to be honest with you, that, that question has lingered with me. I've preached a hundred messages on Calvary. And every time I preach on Calvary, something new comes up, a, a different thought, something else. You know, how, how, Robertson, do you see Calvary? When I survey the cross, and that wondrous cross, let me put it that way, how do you see it? One of the early church fathers, his name is Damascene, and he likened the cross to a key of gold. If accepted, it will open paradise. But if unaccepted, it becomes an iron key and opens the gates of hell. 
Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.18, The cross to them that perish foolishness. But unto those that are saved, it is the power of God. How do you see the cross? In our society today, with all the information right at our fingertips, with everybody's ideas all right there, everybody's able to, to instantly get someone else's idea about something. Now, case in point, what I'm about to say, I'm going to qualify with this remark, and if you take this wrong, you're, you need to pray through. I, again, on Sundays, I get the paper. First, right on the front page, they had this. They did not call him a Nazi, but he was believing in white power. And he was on Monroe County Courthouse. He was there. He had called a little demonstration, and he was the only one who showed up. But 200 others showed up against him. Okay? Now, we can say what we want, but all of these, and again, what he had on his sign had nothing to do with racism. But yet, all of these people were getting in his face, cussing him, cursing him, and he stood stoically and never said a word. Just had his sign. Finally, they ripped his hat off, they took his sign, and they had to take him out of there in a the police car. Now, this other group of people, which was against him, showed more anger and hatred to him than he was showing to others. Do you understand what I'm saying? What I'm trying to get at here this morning is the simple fact. If you don't quite understand the, and if I can use the term, the mysticism of, of Calvary, and because you don't understand it, you might laugh at it, and you might point fun at it and say, how can a group of people believe in a God that dies on a cross? And you can show hatred, but the very fact that we have a God that died on a cross shows a love that's greater than any hatred this world could ever throw at us. Because we've got a God that in every point was tempted like we are tempted. Because we've got a God that came down to this earth and felt what we feel. And no other God has ever done that. Because all other gods are false gods. Whether you like to hear that or not, it is the truth. We have a God that shows love regardless. We have a God that would show you love if you spit in His face. Because He did. He did. And, and, and that's, that's what I'm saying. We don't understand sometimes. People can't quite grasp what the cross is saying. The cross is the greatest symbol of love that there ever was. The cross goes beyond the boundaries of race. The cross goes beyond the boundaries of, of nation, of culture. It, it transcends everything. We all become, when you, when you are in, in the church, when you have taken His wonderful name and baptism, when you have taken of His Spirit, partaken of His Spirit, you become one culture. Regardless of who you are, regardless of what you've gone through, we all are brothers and sisters, we all love one another, and we don't show the hatred that the world shows. I'll be the first one to stand up here and tell you that I don't agree with everything that goes on within the church world. And you can say, well, you're old and you're set in your ways. You better believe it. The Bible has not changed one bit since I started reading it. Let's look at it. It's just, you know, it's, it's, it's just, look, just a, little, a little bit more to cross. You know, the geography, the very geography of Golgotha Hill uh, has, has changed somewhat in my mind. And, and 
you know, when I was first got in church, when I was younger, everything, uh, you, you saw the pictures and you saw the sunset and you saw the three crosses on the hill, Calvary's hill. And, and you, you see that, but yet in the scripture, it really doesn't describe it quite the way you see it in the pictures. Golgotha was called the place of the skull. And they say that they never, ever crucified anybody on the peak of a hill. But at Golgotha, the, the very formation of the base of the hill was looking like a skull. And at the base is where they crucified. In fact, it was uh, Quintilian, a Roman uh, uh, rhetorician in AD 35 through 95, said this. He said, whenever we crucify the guilty, the most crowded roads are chosen, where most people can see and be moved by this fear. For penalties relate not so much to retribution as to their exemplary effect. It's the same reason in the West they used to hang people in the middle of town. They wanted as many people to see it as they could. Because I want to scare you out of doing something bad. And so when they crucified him, more than likely he was crucified at the very base of Golgotha, the place that did look like the skull. And the Romans used this. This was a form of psychological terror. And it did serve as a deterrent for future uh, problems or lawbreakers. So how do I see Calvary? I see Jesus Christ treated as a common criminal. Two robbers and the prince of all thieves, the one who would take away the world, world's sins. You ever stop and think about it? He was a prince of all thieves. He stole the sins of the world. Isn't that great? I see a back shredded by torture. I see knees and shins bleeding from his many falls, a reed placed in his, his quivering right hand, a crown of thorns crushed low over his brow. That's always one with me. I've, every time that I, I think of the thorns, I go back. In fact, just, just last week, um, I, went, I went mushroom hunting with uh, yeah, my son and, and Eric. I get my brain going here. And uh, I walked in the area. Of course, we were walking down through there, and I found a couple of little. I, I had to I had to be careful with my grandson. He's uh, I got this 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 walking stick that got a mushroom on top of it, and so he began to think I was into magic. And I, I you know, I pointed down the mushroom pop up. He started following me so close I didn't even know he was behind me. You know, every place. I said, now Eric, I said we don't believe in magic. I said we I, I don't make mushrooms pop up, and he still wasn't sure because I found two or three. You know, mushrooms. And then all of a sudden, he goes up behind his log and comes out with a mushroom about, you know, this huge, great big. I said, see, it proves it. Now, this made me feel like uh, dirt, you know. <laughs> Here he finds this huge mushroom bigger than all four or five that I found. And so anyway, God proved his point. But, you know, we, we <laughs> I, I, as we were walking through there, and, and every time I do, I come across, and they're not the thorns that we have, but come across the honey locust tree, which is a thorn tree, and they've got thorns about four inches long. And uh, and every time, I always use that as a time to, to tell, I used to do that with my children and do the grandchildren the same way. This is, this is similar to what Jesus had placed on his head. And then I said they took a stick, they call a reed, and I said they drove those thorns all the way into his skin to, the, to his skull. And, uh, you know, the, to get the point across, because every time I see it, it's the instantly, that's what I think of. And in Israel, they say that the thorns are more like six inches long. So they're much larger than the ones that we have around here. But every time I see, I, I, I think of the thorns that, that, that were crushed over his brow. And uh, 
It's interesting as well because thorns were sin's curse on the earth. Part of the original curse was the thorns and the thistles that were to come up because the very thing that was a very very thing that was a curse on this earth they used on the Lord. How unseemly yet it's it's appropriate. How ghastly yet it's fitting. Jesus actually wore the curse of the world. He wore it. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So how do I see Calvary? On his shaking shoulders I see a cross. I see Simon the Cyrene, a a black man, step forward and picked it up. You ever stop and think of the unexpected crosses you have in your life? We situations occur we never dream are going to happen. Tomorrow something may happen and you have to pick up an unexpected cross. You never dreamed it would happen. How are you going to handle that when you have to pick up an unexpected cross? If History tells us that Simon the Cyrene must have had words with Jesus because he went back to Ethiopia and began to spread. In fact, the earliest Christian church known is in Ethiopia. The culture actually shows Christianity long before anybody else. So something happened between him and Simon that caused him to take this message back to his homeland. So does an unexpected cross actually give you a future blessing? Are you willing to pick it up knowing that right now it's going to hurt to carry this? But what's going to happen in the future? You ever stop and think of the example that, again, that you're setting for those that are around you, people that you love so much? Is Dad willing to pick up an unexpected cross? Because he loves me. Is dad willing to go that extra mile? Is mom willing to go that extra mile? Those little eyes look at you and they begin to, to, to instantly pick up their future by how you act. I could preach on the unexpected cross for another hour, but I won't. Rusty spikes driven in his hands. And his feet possibly turned sideways. One spike driven through both feet. That's what Calvary means. There, amid two thieves, he hung. There, he uttered his final words. There, from a cursed tree, he purchased redemption for each of us. How do I see Calvary? I see Calvary as a torn body. I see Calvary also as a torn veil. It's not just a matter. When Jesus' body was torn we could see inside the riches of God's nature. Yes, God became man. And when His body was ripped, the veil in the temple was ripped. We, could, was, we, can, achieve, we can achieve God. We can go boldly into His presence because of that torn body and because that torn body represented the torn veil. Boldly I can walk into God's presence. Not one of us in this place here this morning can say that you have to come to a priest in order to get into God's presence. Any one of us at any time can drop to our knees and God can bless you right where you sit. God can bless you right now as you hear the words that are coming from this pulpit. Because we have the right and the privilege to go into His presence. I see Calvary as a crimson stream that makes me white as snow. 
My God, no matter how many times I see that, how many times people are trying to, so many people are trying to get away from the blood. They want to make church this some town kind of, kind of social gathering, some kind of entertainment thing. But listen, when I come here, I want something to touch me. I want to walk away from here changed. If I need correction, I want to get correction. I need to come and I need to feel the presence of God and I need to feel the blood of Jesus Christ as it runs from the top of my head all the way to the bottom of my feet. I need that cleansing every day. This is not just a one-time thing. I need it every day, every day. And the closer I get to Him, the more His blood touches me, the more I'm encouraged, and the more I know that God is right there. I see Calvary as a ticket of redemption that freed me from Satan's pawn shop. Ever think about that one? mess that we would have been in, each, each and every one of us individually, the lives that we were leading. If you think you can pull yourself out of sin, you're sadly mistaken. If you think that you don't need God and you don't need the church, you're sadly mistaken. You need it every day of your life. We were discussing the other night some of the things about the cell groups and and uh, Eldar made the made the statement that he said, uh, he said if I don't go to a cell meeting once a week, he said I feel like I've I've backslid. I think it was similar to that. You know, it it, it began. It, you get weak because the more you're in around God's people, the more the more time you spend in God's presence around God's people, the more that you want because every every chance that you get to be with God's people, to be in the atmosphere of a service, whether it's a cell group or a church service, every opportunity you're going to be strengthened. Something else can be revealed to you. You can be stronger and a better person as a result of it. These groups can make such a difference. This is how God intended for things to be. God's people are not just a group of people that, you know, we come to church once a week and, and that's it. You know, we just kind of get a, a bomb for our conscience and that's no more than that. I wish you could understand what I'm saying. I see Calvary through the lens of an empty tomb. That's how I see Calvary. writer once said this, Three guys were tried for crimes against humanity. Two guys committed crimes. One guy didn't. Three guys were given government trials. Two guys had fair trials. One guy didn't. Three guys were whipped and beaten. Two guys had it coming. One guy didn't. Three guys were given crosses to carry. Two guys earned their crosses. One guy didn't. Three guys were mocked and spit at along the way. Two guys cursed and spit back. One guy didn't. Three guys were nailed to crosses. Two guys deserved it. One guy didn't. Three guys agonized over their abandonment. Two guys had reason to be abandoned. One guy didn't. Three guys talked while hanging on their crosses. Two guys argued. One guy didn't. Three guys knew death was coming. Two guys resisted. One guy didn't. One, two, three guys died on three crosses. Three days later, two guys remained in their graves. One guy didn't. Mm. That's how I see Calvary. 
a gory prelude, if you would, to a glorious resurrection. But this is, this is hindsight. What, what about those who, who loved him what, uh, and walked with him? What did Simon Peter and Mary Magdalene and Bartholomew do as each pondered, what shall I do with a buried God? What, what did they do? When confronted with a buried God, be still because he won't be. John said it very well in John 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Unlike the lifeless deities buried in Shechem, Jesus had life within Him. Jesus had the power to lay down His life and to pick it up again. Be still, because the life giver will not be. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is more than a story. This, this is a divine motive. You know, it, 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 he steps into darkness and he brings light. I, I don't know about you, but this is exactly what happened to me. He stepped into the darkness of my life and he brought light. He steps into hopelessness and he brings hope. Are you, are you with hope this morning? Yes, you are. Do you remember when you were hopeless? Yes, you do. But we have hope again. He, he does the work and not... Not us. He's the one that gives us hope. Not us. I can't give myself hope. I'm a hopeless being. But because of the resurrection, I've got hope that goes beyond this veil of tears. Be still and know that God will not be still. That's one thing I can know. You may feel like you can't do it. You can't, my friend. But we got a God that can. Just don't rush Him. Let Him do what He wants to do in the time that He wants to do it. Imagine God, uh, Jacob's family at Shechem. He came, he came back from the woods carrying his shovel. They looked behind him expecting to see their gods. <laughs> but none ever made it out from under the tree. Where's your gods? They're still under the tree. <laughs> Many have stood outside the tombs of Mohammed and Gandhi. And you know, you may laugh at this one, but there's people that stand outside of Elvis's tomb. There's people standing outside Diana's tomb. Houdini used to go to his grave and wait for him to resurrect. But guess what? You know, they're still there. They stand outside these shrines and they're hoping, but none of these ever made it out of their tombs. That doesn't stop these faithful people. You ever stop and think about how faithful some of these people are? They still go, still, there's still some that goes to Houdini, keeping think, they think that he'll still, he'll some way find a way to escape the grave. You know, they, they, they're stopping. They keep waiting. They keep hoping. But the woods of death have enclosed their gods, and that's exactly where they're going to stay. They're, they're there. Others wait at bars. Some at street corners. Some at office buildings. They wait for that promise to be fulfilled, that dream to come true. It's the same thing, folks. There's nothing wrong with wanting to better yourself. I'm not saying that. I am just saying this. If that is all there is for your life, then you've got a problem. And we got the answer. It's not a matter of waiting for the boss to die so you can move up. That becomes your God. They keep waiting. They keep hoping. But the woods of death, again, have enclosed their gods. Their gods are buried and they're going to stay down. 
Yet for those who waited for those three days, those three dark days, they, they weren't disappointed. Two angels sat in the tomb proclaiming, He's not here. Why seek you the living among the dead? Your buried God is buried no longer. There's the difference. Your buried God is no longer here. Yes, they put Him in a tomb, but He's not in the tomb any longer. Let the stone shake because the rock of ages won't quake. Let the Roman seal vaporize. Let the one whose government is upon his wounded shoulder step forward. Let the paltry decrees fall before the King of kings and the Lord of lords because there's absolutely nothing that they can decree, nothing that they can do that was going to hold him inside that tomb. They put soldiers there. They sealed it. They did it all. That did not stop it. And it never will stop it. Jesus lives. He took a dead end and turned it into a detour. You ever had him do that for you? Walk in the dead end and all of a sudden it was just nothing more than a detour. A different way, different direction. Jesus lives. And all we have to do is believe with all of our hearts. You want God to change your life? Believe with all of your heart. You want God to do something good for you? Believe with all your heart. I want you to vision, envision that. that tomb. You're, there's a couple in here that needs the Holy Ghost. You've got to get your eye on that empty tomb and realize He didn't just do that for me or for the men up here, for anybody that's out there. He did that for you. Each and every one of us specifically, Jesus did it for us. Now, as Israel made his way towards Bethel, some stalwarts in his clan probably thought, our buried gods will find us. They'll follow us. They'll track us down, and they'll reclaim us. Now, they have ears, but they hear not, folks. They have eyes, but they see not. Those buried gods can't find their way through the forest of human misery. You can take all the idols you want, and your most miserable time, they're not going to find a way out. But Jesus can do it in an instant, one instant of believing him. Their arms can't remove the weight of loneliness. Absolutely will not, cannot. They can't remove the greed, the selfishness. They can't relieve the burden of depression, sickness, and pain. The weight of it all keeps all of them immobilized. You see, those buried gods were completely immobilized by just the weight of human suffering. But Jesus took all of that on himself on the cross. He carried it for us. There's one who bore all pain and all sorrow. Keep looking. Keep looking because he'll find you. He'll find you. Mary, do you hear something? Do you hear the stirring and do you hear the trembling, Mary? Do you hear it? Someone is coming for you. Someone who has seen your tears, they're coming for you right now. Mary, can you hear the voice of one who was dead but now is alive forevermore? Can you hear the voice of the one who's done it all for you? Can you hear that, McCormick's Creek Church? Can you hear the voice of the one who's done it all for you? Can you hear the voice of the one that pulled you out of the darkness of that hopeless life? Can you, can you hear the voice of the one who put your marriage back together? Hey, listen to me. Can you hear the voice voice of the one who delivered you from drugs and from alcohol and from cursing and from every other bad thing. Can you hear the voice? He's still alive. He's still well. And he's still delivering. Let's give him a hand clap of adoration. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. As the music begins to play, I'm closing with this. Philip had Down syndrome. 
And he went to Sunday school each week, and he was a very pleasant, happy child. And on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, the teacher gave each student a large plastic egg. And she told them to find a symbol of life and bring it back the next Sunday. Class returned, and each opened his egg. There was a flower in one, a butterfly in the other, and so forth and so on. And finally, it was Philip's turn, and he opened his egg, and there was nothing inside. The class let out a sigh of disappointment, but Philip said, There is nothing inside because the tomb is empty. The teacher and class were amazed at Philip's insight. Philip died not long after that, and his class all marched up to the casket bearing his body. The teacher placed an empty plastic egg inside. That's our hope today, folks. That's our hope. What shall I do with a buried God? What will I do with him? I just wait on him. That's what I do. Because if that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, you're not going to stay buried. It's not going to happen. And because he lives, you can live also. Today at Bethel, today at God's house, we need to find a living God. If you just raise your hands with me for a little while as we begin to sing a song here that I've been wanting to sing.